Välkomna till Kulturhuset Stadsteatern. Välkomna till Internationell författarscen. Jag heter Ingemar Fast och jag är konstnärlig ledare för litteraturscenen i detta stora bygge vid Särgels torg. Och det är dags för er att få möta Kim Thuy i samtal med Hans Olav Bränner. Could I see you? Could, could, could there be light? <laughs> Let there be light. And I'll tell you why. Because in Quebec, we have not opened uh, you know, the theaters uh, yet. And uh, so the rooms are only, I think, 50% full. Uh, we're not allowed to have more. And uh, we have just started about uh, two or three weeks ago. So I'm just happy to see people. <laughs> <laughs> so... And I'm always surprised. I thought that you would be, again, only three, because I've been here too often, you know. And so, sorry, I'll let Hans talk. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm <laughs> yes, I'm returning to this trauma from last time. <laughs> so that's wonderful. No, it was, it, it was great. Um, uh, and you're returning to Sweden again and again. I must say, you have equipped me with everything uh, regarding the pandemic uh, that I oh, need yes. for the rest of the time. Your own uh, protection and a bag from the publishing house. I'm, uh, I'm going home to Norway with a lot of equipment. Yeah, but I, I just realized that you don't wear a mask at all. So it's totally useless. I've brought some for you. Uh, they're, they're about uh, 15 that I was going to just give to anybody who would want this. And I'm very shy about this mask because it had been ordered by my mom and my aunt, uh, embroidered from Vietnam and so on and so forth. So it has been sent from Vietnam and it traveled because of the pandemic. It, uh, I think it had been to 10 cities in the US before it got to Montreal. And the problem is the design I wanted was only the title M. But of course, my mom and my aunt had to put my name on it. <laughs> and, uh, and the word, l'amour encore, right? Mm. Love again. And uh, so I'm a little bit shy. That, but, but so if any of you want a mask, then there will be some <laughs> later on. I'm looking forward to using it. And I'm going to prepare a little for the explanation part of this. So yeah. there will be a couple of <laughs> things to say about it. Um, I. I, I don't think I will need to introduce you from, from the bottom, so to speak, because you uh, have a very close relationship with the Swedish audience uh, after several books. Uh, but now we're going to talk about this book called yes. M. Yes. Uh, and if I had the question, um, let's say, hypothetically, <laughs> why is Kim returning to some of the same topics and the same places uh, as before? Uh, you answer that question right away from the beginning here, actually. That's uh, how you start the book. I don't remember. What did I say? <laughs> the war once again. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And then yes. you talk about the paradoxes of the war, that the good and the bad live side by side, etc. You know, and also because that war lasted for 20 years. And it involved, so, it impacted so millions and millions of people. So even if I wrote one book every month, I would not be able to tell all the stories, right? right? Because they're, they're personal and they're personalized and each story would impact another story, right? One, one soldier who, who dies impacts a whole community and a whole country, actually. And so that's why there are more and more stories. And also, you know, while I was writing this book, um, uh, what happened to Afghanistan uh, mm. was not yet, you know, in the no. news. And then once it was published, then uh, what happened to Afghanistan, hap uh, you know, uh, uh, went into play. And there are pictures of almost the same helicopters. And you see people running. And if you don't look at the clothing, you would think that it was Vietnam. Mm. So 40-something years later, we're repeating history exactly like it was. The good news is, I think, it proves that humans don't change too quickly. We don't mutate, right? We don't get, we, yeah, the, the external environment have not, has not changed us so much because we keep doing the same thing over and over again. And I, I, 
Well, it's sad to say, but I think if you change the word Saigon to Kabul and Vietnam to Afghanistan, this book would still stand. Mm. And that's the sad part of it, I think. Mm. Because I had to, uh, I think the s story of the Vietnam War or the many, many, many stories that what, what you talk about uh, is kind of present for us. But still, I think that we need a little um, insight to it still, because uh, by the end of the book, um, you talk about the Vietnamese people living around the world, how they greet each other, what they say to each other in order to make clear what part of history they're part of, so to speak. Yes, to even my, my, you know, the Vietnamese um, uh, in Berlin, for example, uh, if I tell my mom, I said, oh, there, you know, there's a big Vietnamese community in Berlin, and she would say, oh, they are not from the south of Vietnam. And they arrived after 75, you know. And, and so that's a different group of Vietnamese. And then if you in, in Canada, we have those who arrived there in the 60s as students. And then those who arrived in the 70s like us. And now you have, you know, other Vietnamese arriving afterwards. And they said, oh, no, they're not the same. They're from the north. They're from, you know. So the, the, uh, the conflict continues. And the problem is that the conflict was not created by the Vietnamese in a way, right? We, we were um, structured to hate each other. And the war has ended. The, the, the people who were present at that point has, have left, but the Vietnamese continue the conflict beyond the borders. Mm. And that's the sad part, right, again. But, to well, just to go back to your first question, my first intention to write this book was not about the war. I wanted to tell a love story. I wanted it to be like those, uh, you know, eloquent, that's how you call it? Just love story, you know, an epic love story. Mm. And, and then it didn't work out at all. Did the, you have any characters or anything like that? Or? I, I did try, mm -hmm. but it got deleted, you know, because I was so bad at it. I didn't know how to to, yeah, to just be in love and say lovely things, you know, like... <laughs> yeah, because uh, isn't that kind of a common experience that fiction writers make, that, that describing a happy love is almost impossible? It yes, yes, you know, I have a friend who, uh, who, who, who tried, well, who, who, who is a writer, but didn't buy sell enough books to live on, and so uh, there was one magazine kind of who ordered him uh, who uh, which ordered him to write some pornographic uh, yeah. books yes and he said oh that's easy you know I'll make easy money by writing pornographic uh, books uh, but the editor right away warned him and said you know it's very difficult so go slowly you know because there's so much you can say about you know, the actions and the gestures and so on and so forth. And so he made the mistake to go really, you know, into the action very quickly. And then after 10 pages, that's it. He couldn't make a book out of it and couldn't make any money. It was even worse than trying to write fiction, yeah. right? So oh, why am good. I talking about this? No, I'm I mean, sorry. <laughs> there, could, there could be uh, people with writing ambitions here, so then they have a... <laughs> No, but the love story, well, actually the love story of this book, for those who have read it, the, the, the picture, I saw this picture 15 years ago, the first time, uh, of this little baby curled up in, uh, in a cardboard box, right? And she, she was half naked and all dirty, and next to her there was a ball, I think it was to beg for, for money or for food. And then next to the cardboard box you had this boy, also curled up, almost like wrapping the, the cardboard, uh, the, the box. And he was also dirty and both of them were sleeping on the sidewalk. And I thought it was the picture that illustrated, you know, human condition, you know, the misery, the worst misery that you could imagine children being abandoned on a sidewalk. But at the same time, if you look at the picture closely, you see that the, the, the little baby in the box had her hand on the side, you know, holding the side of the box. And then the boy was also holding, you know, the same side of the box, so their hands were touching. And of course, it, it was not a natural position, right, to sleep and to have your hands on the side of the box. But that gesture illustrated the purest love. Mm. 
So on the same picture, you have the contradiction between misery and love. You know, so, and over the years, I found documentation where they talked about the girl. She got adopted to the US and she even had the chance to meet up with the photographer mm. of that uh, yeah. picture. But I've never found anything about the boy. No. And so maybe he got adopted as well. Maybe he's doing well. I, I don't know. But I said I have to pay homage to this boy who for sure had given so much love to this baby that even in their sleep, they would have this, 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 these hands together, right? And so I wanted to tell that love story that maybe they were not brothers and sisters and that, uh, you know, they would meet uh, by accident on a beach and then they fall in love and they recognize that they had met before <laughs> and that was the story, but I never got to write it. <laughs> No, so the book is a love story after all, or there are many love stories. The, the, the sudden uh, signs of love, uh, epiphanies uh, all over the book, uh, book actually. I hope, I hope that's what you felt, uh, uh, because during the research of this book, contrary to all the, the other three that I had written, is that um, I was very angry at myself okay. for this book, because I discovered that I uh, didn't look deep enough there was so much misinformation that I believed that they were true. Mm -hmm. And for example, to uh, the Operation Baby Lift that, yes. that, uh, that I have written about, for the longest time I thought it was a grand gesture from the American president to say that, oh, one month before the end of the war we're going to go in, we're going to save all the children, you know, the orphans um, who were mostly... Uh, children from, uh, born from uh, American soldiers uh, and, you know, to save them from uh, being um, mistreated by the communists. Uh, and that's, I really believed that message for 40 years until I started, you know, looking into it and, and I heard um, uh, a documentary where one of the, the, the babies who survived from the, the baby lift, she was adopted in Australia and she became a journalist. So she went to the US and somehow she found the person who designed that program to send military planes to go back and pick up the children. And so she started the, uh, the, the interview by saying, oh, I would like to thank you for having saved so many children. Mm. And he said, you should not thank me because it was not about you. Uh, we did it for um, uh, a photo op, they said, you know, he yeah. said, uh, because why would we save orphans? You are children of dust. You're worthless, you know. No communist would mistreat you. We only mistreat someone so that, you know, you, you can negotiate uh, uh, for something else, but you don't just mistreat dust, mm. right? And the word children of what dust... a terrible expression. Yeah, but it's really the translation from the Vietnamese. That's how we call people who live on the street. Mm. And, and so I knew that he knew Vietnamese in order to translate that into children of dust. And that broke my heart, you know, that I didn't know... The, the, I didn't look to get to the, 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 the bottom of things. So this book is a little bit different from the other three because there was so much um, sadness from my part that I didn't uh, look enough. I, I didn't dig you know, into these issues before this book. But when I, I uh, sat down to write, I couldn't do it from my anger. I couldn't do it from my frustration because the purpose of my writing is only to share with the reader what I find beautiful, right? Uh, this world has enough ugliness. We don't need more ugliness. So I said, okay, how can I share beauty through writing? And, and all the, the stories that I read about, I couldn't find beauty. Uh, so it took me a long time in order to you know, step back and try to find that tiny light. And I'll tell you, there's one story that I wanted to share with the reader, and, and I, did, I, 
I didn't know how because I couldn't see the beauty. Uh, you know, I couldn't find that light. Was that there was a soldier who um, who was saying that he when he first he was first deployed in Vietnam, he arrived there and he saw many um, many strings of something. So he, he uh, you know, uh, near the uh, the soldiers' beds, and when he got closer, he saw that there were strings of dried ears. You know that they kept as um, trophies, right, uh, of of the the victims. And I wanted to tell that story not to tell you the horror, but to say that these kids—they were 18, 19, 20-year-old soldiers. They, I'm sure, they had never dreamed of doing these things. You know, the the these ears were the illustration of their panic, of the the hostility that they had to face. You know when they they were doing this, and who put them into those situations? Adults. You know what kind of adults would send a healthy 18-year-old boy and turn them into crazy people, right? So, and I wanted to share that story, and I couldn't, I couldn't until um, one day I got an interview from uh, from a journalist from Belgium. And uh, and I tried to say it to her in French, and I didn't know how to say string in French that morning. Somehow, you know, sometimes <laughs> you don't have the words. <laughs> and she said, "Oh, it's like a rosary," you know. And if I had found that word rosary, I would have been able to share the story to you because a rosary carries hope. You know, when you're praying. It doesn't matter which religion, you know, we, the Buddhists have it, the, the Catholics have these rosary. And when you do this, it's because you still have hope. You're wishing for something, right? And so if this is a rosary of ears, then we can still see ho hope in, uh, in that story. Hmm. So maybe next book. And then you know that it's, uh, it had been discussed with hands. <laughs> But this, in a way, it's a literary method for this book, looking for the light in the sad and difficult stories. But it has something to do with you as well, I guess, about uh, to do with your worldview. Yeah, because I think beauty is the only vehicle that uh, can save us, mm -hmm. in a way. And uh, I think maybe I've talked to you about this, but uh, you know, the Vietnam War was probably the first very visual. Uh, war mm. that we had access to films and pictures and so on and so forth, but the there there had been so many pictures, but the one picture that really triggered a change in the public opinion was the one with the little girl running, you know, in the middle of the highway. Why? And I think because the picture was perfect, perfectly framed. You know, and and the way that she was running, it was symmetrical. You know, the, the the arms was symmetrical, and there was something mythical almost in that body that you can you could not even tell if it was a boy or a girl, and and so I think because of the beautiful picture, it caught our eyes and we got attached and we wanted to know who was the the little girl, and once that we know, we fall into the trap of beauty. And and we discover, and I you know there 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 was a documentary with nurses uh, in Vietnam, American nurses in Vietnam and Vietnamese nurses, who were saying like, why do you pay so much at, so much attention to this girl? There have been so there are so many children being burned by Nepal. She was not the only one. So and and she said they they said the nurses they said that if you take only her, then people will think that there's only one child being, being burned, but there are so many. But, in, like, but do you agree? Um, no, I don't agree, because I think humans, we need to attach to one person. We cannot, you know, we, we have a smaller brain, I think, we cannot be attached to a group of 1,000. We need a, 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 an image, a, a face in order to be attached. And if we look at, you know, more recently, the picture that also changed our mind was the little boy on the beach, right? Mm. You, you think of that picture right away. And because the picture was beautiful, the next day, you, you have the same picture with a larger frame, 
where you see the lifeguards, the life vests, the boats, and so on and so forth, and nobody remembers mm. because it was not, it was no longer a beautiful picture. So I think we should give ourselves the right to use beauty as a vehicle in order to connect to each other. And I think it's, you know, and luckily we, most of us, we don't have the chance to live horror. We, you know, we hear about it, we read about it, but we don't, you know, we, we haven't lived it. And so when I talk to you about horror, for example, I think we can connect at the cerebral level, right? Our intellect can understand. But the, from, from this door, I would say from our head, I think it keeps us, you know, arm's length almost. Whereas beauty, I think all of us, we have lived beauty at least once, right? We have smelled something nice. We have tasted something delicious. We've seen the blue sky. Uh, we've heard some music. So we understand beauty. We've lived beauty. And so if we use beauty, I think we can connect from the guts and from the heart. And we enter from that door and the, the, the horror can be felt and not understood. And that changes everything, I, th I think. And so maybe you're right. So this book is about love in that sense, love for beauty. Mm. And talking about the visual part, there's um, another picture as well that you write about the, the burning Buddhist uh, monk as well. What kind of impact did that picture have? That picture um, was uh, important because uh, of the the first lady. She was not the wife of the pre the, pre the president, uh, but she was very powerful because the president didn't have a wife, I think, and she took over that uh, that position, and uh, and she was a very strong woman, very tiny, but you know fierce, uh, uh, like a tiger. And my mom would tell you that she has opened up the world for women in Vietnam. She was the one who really um, opened up the dress, the Vietnamese dress, to show more neck and more of the shoulder and so on and so forth, and to, to form even an army of women, you know, and that could not, it was not even thinkable uh, to have women, you know, in uniforms where she would have, I don't know, I think 25,000 women you know, armed and uh, in the military and so on and so forth. But at the same time, because she was very fierce, she commented, she was in the, in the US when the monk burned himself. And the, the journalist asked her, you know, what do you think? What's you know, about this, uh, this event? And she just, you know, very casually, she said, oh, the, he barbecued himself. And she used the word barbecue. And she said, and he didn't even do it on himself, uh, by himself. Uh, the gasoline that he used uh, was imported from the, from the Americans. So what are you protesting against, you know, if you're using uh, goods from the enemy? So that was her answer. And that shocked the world, of course, uh, right? So that image I wanted to put in there to say that it's in in everything, right? It's very difficult to see the good from the bad. And in this case, she was good for the women in Vietnam, but she could be also, you know, you also considered very evil to say, uh, to use the word barbecue to describe such an event, mm. right, in Vietnam during that war. There's this thing coming back to me because you said previously that you had become angry at one point. Uh, if, if you have been digging deeper into things, would this book have been any different if you, you've been digging deeper, you think, in its substance, essentially? Um, I think knowledge is power, right? Knowledge does nourish you and, and, and gives you a better understanding of the world. So I think the digging was important for me to understand more. Is it better to be angry? Uh, maybe not, but why not at the same time? Because sometimes sometimes we, we need to, to be angry to change things. Otherwise, we just remain where we are. And uh, so not only angry, but so sad. You know, when you read a document, and I couldn't believe that it was written, you know, in black ink, uh, the reasons why 
the American war had to continue, that for, there were three, for three reasons. The first reason was that for 10%, it was to support democracy. You know, that we continue the war because we want to support democracy, but it represented only for 10% of the reasons. And then another 10% was to support the south of Vietnam to fight against the communist North Vietnam. Okay, but still only 20%. And then they start reading and then they said, 80% of the reason was to avoid humiliation. Mm. That was it. That was the reason. And, you know, if you don't dig enough, at, at the, you know, when I was younger, I would say, oh, because the, the, the conflict was between the East and the West, the communists and uh, capitalists, you know, it was ideology. But when you read this document, you realize that it has nothing to do with ideolo ideology. It was not about the freedom of speech. It was not about freedom to be. It was just to avoid humiliation. And unfortunately, I cannot ask anyone like, to say, humiliation of who? You know, it, was it the president who didn't want to be humiliated or the whole country or uh, to avoid who's, you know, whose humiliation? And then on the other side, the Vietnamese, you know, the north of Vietnam, um, they use love at, as an instrument to put young kids and I'm, I'm talking about kids because they were 14 and 15. They should be at your, uh, your library, uh, yeah, just reading books, not going to a battlefield, right? But because they said, oh, because you love your country, because you want the independence of the south of Vietnam, and that's why you're going to give yourself to, uh, to the army and go into a battlefield and die, right? And love is all, it was used in every speech, when you listen to uh, to those uh, uh, speeches, speeches in uh, in the north of Vietnam, so love got to become the instrument, you know, of of dying. How could I, you know? So that's why I think digging is is necessary, so that we underst understand the real intention behind every. Um, uh, well, we understand better that war uh, in the north. Yeah, that's why it could last for twenty for twenty years because of love, right? And and also digging allows us, I think, to understand how humans are so incredible. You know, we are geniuses because you know at the beginning when the Americans uh, created Agent Orange. It was to reveal. Could you explain what Agent Orange is? It's a pesticide that you use to, uh, that that burns leaves in forests. And because the 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 rebels, the communist rebels, uh, hid themselves in the forest, so the Americans said, "Oh, the best way to do this is to burn the forest, mm. right? If you burn, then the Vietnamese would appear." And it's true, the soldiers would appear. But then the Vietnamese very resilient, right? Uh, they said, huh, you're gonna, you burn down the forest? Fine, but we can dig tunnels mm. and we're gonna hide from you in the tunnels. And then the Americans said, yeah, but we can bomb you, right? And destroy the, the tunnels and it worked mm. because at the beginning the tunnels were not deep enough. They were only four meter about deep. And, and then they said, oh, the bomb can go up to four meters. We're gonna go uh, lower. And so there's one, one village in, uh, in the middle of Vietnam where there, were, there, were, there was a lot of bombing that they, 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 uh, they dug tunnels down to nine meters and they lived there for six years in those tunnels. And I've met one of the, the women who was in that tunnel, uh, the soldier at the beginning of, of the book when I described that she, she carried her children. Yeah. She didn't live in that tunnel but she hid herself there at one point and delivered uh, a baby in that tunnel at nine meter deep. And uh, for them to breed, it was a, a bamboo, you know, because bamboo is hollow in the middle. And so people would just, you know, take turns to, to breathe from that bamboo pole. Mm. And, uh, and then, so the Americans said, okay, even, okay, you can hide yourself in the tunnels, but you still need to eat. 
So they said, okay, let's burn the rice. So they create a new agent. I think mm. it was Agent Blue mm. or White mm. or something like that. It killed the, gr the crops, but the grains, the rice grains would fall down and grow again. And so the Americans said, oh, but in order for the rice to grow, it needs a lot of water in, in the soil. And so they said, oh, we're going to create a new pesticide that would suck away all the water so that would kill the rice. And it worked. And you know, if we were not so intelligent, the war would not last that long. You know, mm. just Agent Orange, all the soldiers came out and that was the end of the story, mm. right? But no, we're so good from both sides mm. and that's why it escalated, yeah. I think the story about the, the woman who, who carries her children and, and who has to put one behind uh, and pick him, pick, him, pick him up later, that's the point in the book where I understand that Kim has been sitting with a lot of people listening to their stories for hours and hours and hours. And that is what this book is about, too. Yes, and uh, I had the chance to meet with her. Uh, and I am so thankful that my parents, you know, d uh, forced us, not forced us, but imposed Vietnamese at home mm -hmm. uh, when we arrived in, uh, in uh, Canada. So I was al already 10, so I knew enough of Vietnamese to maintain it. Um, because if I could not speak Vietnamese, I would have missed a lot of these witnesses. Um, now with the technology, with an iPhone, you can tape anybody. And so there, there are a lot of witnesses being taped simply with an iPhone and with YouTube, you know, it's out there, we can all listen. And because these soldiers from the North that we rarely hear about, you know, we, we hear a bit from the South and then we hear a lot from the American side or a lot of the French side, but very little of, of the Vietnamese side. But because of technology, I, I get to hear all these people um, telling their side of the story. And um, one of the, uh, how would I say it? These soldiers are today 80 years old, 90 years old, so they're no longer scared of speaking out. When, when, when did that change, you think? Um, Vietnam has changed, right, since then. Censorship has changed a bit, but not so much, uh, because now um, China is very present in Vietnam. So just recently, um, f uh, Facebook had to negotiate with Vietnam, otherwise Vietnam closed uh, you know, all access to Facebook and Google and all of that, like in China. Um, but uh, Facebook has agreed with Vietnam to take out anything mentioning the government or politics in Vietnam. So in Vietnam, you cannot uh, find any information. Uh, or if you write about it, you will be visited by someone from the police, of course. And so censorship is still there. Uh, but when you're 80 or 90, you don't care anymore. <laughs> you know? That's a good thing. And, uh, and so you dare. But this, the, the woman that I've, I've mentioned in the book, she was a soldier. Um, no, she was from the south of Vietnam. She was from a very rich family. And she studied in French up to age 16. So la bourgeoisie, right, of, uh, of Vietnam. And then at 16, I've told you this story already, right? If you have already heard the story, you just tell me to stop. And I have too many <laughs> stories and not enough time to tell you. So just remind me if I have already told you. But apparently she was in that French school. Not apparently, she, she has told me. So this is a true story. Um, and in the morning of, on Monday, they had to salute the, the flags. So the French flags and the Vietnamese flags, and um, with the national anthem being sung, uh, being played on uh, on the um, on the speakerphone, and she said that her uh, her best friend Juliette, who was French, um, during the national the Vietnamese national anthem, the Juliette she just stomped on um, the shadow of the Vietnamese flag, the shadow of the Vietnamese flag. That's it. And she said that somehow it offended her. And she asked Juliet, she said, why did you do that? And Juliet just said, well, nothing. It was just out of boredom. You know, there was no political intention behind it. And that 
so you know and she said she didn't know why but that moment really broke her all of a sudden she felt that she was vietnamese and not french and so she joined the the resistance and um and she became uh yeah part of the uh, part of the uh, the elite of uh, the communists and i did ask her i said oh did you get to meet ho chi minh and uh, she said well yeah. Every second week, <laughs> so <laughs> and I said, "Oh my God, how scary is that?" I said, "No, no, no. He was apparently he was very charismatic." And she said, "One day, uh, he came to the, the 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 place where they were hiding in the jungle, and so because Ho Chi Minh came." Uh, uh, and of course, Ho Chi Minh was their leader. Uh, the reason why they fought, and uh, uh, for yeah, the the reason they would go to a battlefield and die. Uh, she said that. So he came. So it was a big honor to have Ho Chi Minh come to their camp, and uh, so they cooked, you, you know, a special meal for for him, and it was just water with uh, some leaves uh, from the jungle. And so Ho Chi Minh asked them, uh, so what do you think of this soup? And they all like, oh, it's the best soup, it's really tasty, we're really happy, and so on and so forth. And he said, no, this soup is really shitty, you know? And if you're satisfied with this, then you should not go on a battlefield. We're fighting so that we no longer eat this kind of soup. And so that's why they fought. They continue to fight so they don't eat this soup. Anyway, <laughs> so that's a very simple. But anyway, I I I I chatted with her in Montreal mm. for um, for six hours. Mm. I tried to tape, you know, everything that she was saying, and I asked her only one question at the end. I said, knowing everything that you know now, having seen you know death up close and personal, do you think it was worth it? you know, to fight for peace. It, you know, those two words should not go together. What do you mean fight for peace? Peace should not have fighting in it. And she said, you know that I cannot answer you. I'm still living in Vietnam. So I think that gives you, you know, a picture of, um, because she's still very active, mm. so I think she's more scared and someone who, who's less active. So there are many soldiers um, yeah, who are speaking out now. Would you hesitate to go to Vietnam now? Um, personally, no. But I'll tell you that uh, the first book, Ru, um, got all the financing. You know, we were ready to go uh, film, to, to make the movie uh, of Ru in uh, last year, two years ago, last year. I don't know, when the pandemic hit. Um, and before that, we sent the, the script to Vietnam um, just to see if we, we would be okay to you know, go to Vietnam and make this movie. And uh, the person on the other line, this, this soldier who's now 92, 93, she said to me, she, uh, on the phone, over the phone, and I had the Canadian producer and you know, the whole team on the phone at the same time, and I said, oh, you know, do you think that I could send you uh, the script of Rue? And then she said, how, how are your parents? <laughs> I'm like, oh, yes, my parents are fine. How are your children? What is the weather right now in Canada? And she kept on talking about other stuff. And, and she said, I have a friend who's coming to Vietnam. Maybe you can send me that chocolate that I love so much. Okay? And uh, we'll talk later. And that was her sign to say, don't send me any emails or, you know, don't send me the script by emails, just send it, you know, through this friend mm. who would take it to her. And the answer at the end was, no, you mm. cannot film it in Vietnam. Mm. And I said to the production, the team, that yes, we should go anyway and uh, make the movie in Vietnam. Uh, and if I get arrested, then maybe it's good for the movie, you know? <laughs> and they said no they didn't want to be responsible for me being arrested in Vietnam and if I'm, I get arrested in Vietnam then maybe I, uh, I'll be stuck there for, for a while because mm. uh, yeah and it's not a cool prison I was going to tell you another story about the prison but no Hans tell me <laughs> about the prison I follow your question 
<laughs> I mean, stories about prisons, could we avoid them? A prison? Mm. Um, I, I worked for the Canadian consulate in Saigon in year 2000 for one year. And I was basically responsible for the Canadians who find themselves in Vietnam, you know, in trouble in Vietnam. So from passports to prison, right? And one day I had to go um, uh, pick up a prisoner uh, who was Canadian but of Vietnamese origin. And he had been in, the pr uh, in that prison for many years. And finally he got released. And the only job that I had to do was to go into that prison, sign the paperwork and take my Canadian back. And uh, I got there and the prison was in kind of a jungle, you know, a forest. So you have to roll for, I don't know, a couple of kilometers before uh, you see the office of the director of the prison. And the, uh, the, the, the office was just a roof, no walls, you know, with desk and everything, but there were no walls. And so I, I, I went up and there were five men sitting there waiting for me. And uh, I, I got really nervous because the driver couldn't come up close with me. So I was really a girl alone with those five men. And they kept me there for five hours without giving my prisoner who was sitting under a tree, you know, really further away. And uh, I think it was the only time in my life that I was sure I was going to be raped and maybe killed in that, uh, because there was a lot of, uh, and when I talked about, you know, the conflict continue, they were from the north and they could tell that I was from the south from my accent and also what I was doing and um, and so they started off with uh, so are you, uh, so you're married to a white guy and I said and I was not married but I said yes I was gonna say to ten guys you know just to make sure and uh, I said yeah apparently in the Western world you can do whatever you want right and I said whatever you want yeah if you want to become a lawyer you can if you want to be a doctor and it yeah, the conversation went into that direction for five hours. And they, of course, served me water and tea and so on and so forth, and I didn't dare to touch any of that. And uh, so, yeah, so when uh, I finally got my prisoner, we got out of the gate, and the prisoner spoke and said to me that, uh, that I was really lucky because there was no woman who could get out of that prison without being damaged in some way. Hmm. And so that was the only, I don't know why I'm telling you this. Oh. <laughs> and I was representing Canada. Hmm. Uh, so imagine if I go back to film Rue, uh, to f uh, the, yeah, the first. Yeah. So maybe it's not a good You'll idea. You'll get out of any situation, it sounds. Maybe, <laughs> but maybe not for this one. Anyway, <laughs> the production didn't, does, yeah, they don't want to be responsible for me being no. arrested. Of no, course. but do you agree with me? It would be so good for the movie. It will be in the newspaper as <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> uh, one question I really wanted um, to ask you was the question about to what extent do you see Vietnam's more recent history as your own? I've heard in the interview talking about your mother, uh, who still doesn't accept the flag. Uh, mm -hmm. that covers all of Vietnam today. She still sees the um, South Vietnamese flag as the real one. So, of course, she has another position towards Vietnam than, do you, have, uh, than you have. Could you explain your position towards Vietnam? I think I allow myself to... Um, I give myself the freedom to love the things that I love from Vietnam, from the culture, from the history, from the... And I also give myself the freedom to not love the things that I don't love about Vietnam, to be critical uh, about Vietnam. And like anything, right, uh, we, we, we are not perfect. And, uh, and so, but I do love Vietnam, the Vietnamese culture, unconditionally. Um, not perfectly, because I don't speak Vietnamese perfectly and I don't, um, how would I say it? You know, if if you ask me for three names, uh, 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 three musicians or three writers in uh, uh, three 
whatever, painters, I wouldn't be able to name any, you know, or with difficulty. And so I cannot pretend that I really know the Vietnamese culture, but I think I know uh, enough uh, of the Vietnamese culture to love it um, with a lot of imperfection, but unconditionally. So um, I think I am not who I am without that Vietnamese side, that Vietnamese culture in me. And I'm lucky enough to live in a country where nobody asked me to choose. And uh, you know, when I go into schools, uh, the children, they always ask me, oh, so in a circle, how much of you is Vietnamese and how much of you is Canadian? And it's always difficult to say. Because when I'm, I don't know, uh, when I'm uh, speaking in French, then I know what is, you know, I know how to be a Quebecer, and I, I, I am a Quebecer. And when I speak in Vietnamese, I am a Vietnamese. When I eat a Vietnamese soup, I know what to look for, and I know what is a good Vietnamese soup, right? So I told him, I said, hey, I'm 100% Vietnamese and 100% Canadian. I don't have to choose. And I've eaten enough cheese and bacon and bread to be big enough and large enough to sit on two chairs. I'm not in the crack of two <laughs> chairs. Now I sit on both chairs. And uh, so, yeah, so I'm in a country where we're allowed to have that, to be more than 100%. Mm. We can be 200%. I've heard you say before that you, you feel that you've um, lived a privileged life even though you, you were a refugee as well. Um, and you said this wonderful thing uh, in an interview, that you haven't uh, even had the chance to dream. You haven't had the time to dream. I, I haven't had the, the... You know, like, coming here. I The first time, I didn't know you existed, so it was a big surprise. Well, this, <laughs> this stage, or Sweden, or what? Yes, Sweden, <laughs> the stage, the, this house, this culture house, and... If from the first time you were here, you know, so many of you were here. I think it was a full house too, right? So I wonder how come and why and if you had been paid to be here or, you know, so if I knew about it, I could have dreamed. So, and this time I didn't dream about you because I said my, my dream had been fulfilled so well the first three times I cannot ask for one more you know that would be too greedy and I don't know if we believe there's a God he would punish me for wanting too much right so I didn't dare to dream anything and uh, yeah you need a lot of uh, of knowledge to dream and uh, th th there was at one point I got an email from Pescara and I didn't even know Pescara existed in Italy. And, you know, they invited me over because they wanted to give a prize. And, and I said, oh, my God, you know, I couldn't dream of this. I didn't know they existed. Uh, but I have to share with you. I, I did write about it in, uh, in the book, but it was so extraordinary to sit next to a physician. She was the one who won that prize the year uh, before. And, uh, and I said to her right away that I don't know anything about physics. You know, I can only spell the word atom and molecule, but I don't know what they do. You know, they, that's, that's the extent of it. And so she started saying that she just come back from Canada on a research with Kent, uh, uh, quantum physics and, and, and I listened, you know, politely, but I had no idea what she was saying. And uh, at the end, I just asked her, I said, could you explain to me why humans need to know more and more and more all the time? Uh, why do we have this curiosity? And she said that, um, she said that, you know, knowledge is the only form of infinity that a human can experiment. And, and it's true, because wow. we can never touch infinity, right? Mm. But knowledge is the only thing that we can touch over and over and over again. And that's why we're curious, because we experience infinity with knowledge. How beautiful is that? Mm. So that's Pescara in Italy. If you go, you meet that physician. And I told her, I said, oh, but you're a poet. And she said, no, I'm a scientist. <laughs> and <laughs> But the next day, she invited me to visit a, uh, a home of a poet, uh, of an Italian poet. 
So in a way, she is a poet, mm. right? <laughs> so curiosity, that's part of it too, yes. what you're doing. Yes, and I think we, we truth is sometimes, it's always hard to embrace. Uh, or Yeah, uh, but I think truth does make us grow somehow and does give us more empathy and probably, I hope, that truth will um, prevent us from making the same mistakes again, maybe. Maybe. Uh, I, I, I kind of lost faith in, in humankind during mm. the research of this book, uh, but I, I have regained some. You know, I think we're capable of goodness. Yeah, because you also say, or it's a fact that we repeat the same mistakes again and again. But you, ha you have some hope. Yes, because we love again and again. And we, can, we cannot, you know, uh, avoid loving. I think it's difficult to... to and, and also, I think because we can practice to see beauty. You know, once that you've seen beauty, you cannot unsee it. And I'll give you the example of... Uh, uh, the highway, you know, we're more attracted to horrors, right? So on a highway, you would slow down to see the accident, right? To look at the accident and somehow we even hope to see something, to see a body, to see blood somewhere, right? And that's the worst part of us, of all of us. Uh, but we rarely slow down to look at the wildflowers, the patches of those yellow flowers, right? Which are so tiny and they grow uh, uh, in pollution, in cement, in the worst conditions, but they still grow with that vibrant yellow, right? But if we practice to look at those flowers, I think that's once we've seen them, we'll see them again the next time and the time after and the time after. And I think it does cure us. And, uh, oh, I was going to tell another story. What yeah, was is just, it? No, 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 we have time. time. I <laughs> was just thinking about it because I think I am slightly influenced by your way of thinking because I was standing outside at Sariel's Tori and there are people who would argue that Sariel's Tori isn't that beautiful, the place outside here. I've heard people say that, that the architecture... I got a lot of enemies now, all of a sudden. Yeah. Uh, but uh, with, this, with this phallic <laughs> symbol and everything. And I was standing there, it's so beautiful. And there were tears coming to my eyes before. So I, I'm, uh, I'm part of it now. So right? Yeah, I'm going to get a better and life, uh, I think. But you talked about the truth. Well, was there another story? Yeah, but it's a long story. So I'll Is take your question first. And then we'll tell the story yeah, afterwards. Yeah, you, you'll integrate it after all the story. Yes, I'll yeah. try to see if I can integrate into your question. <laughs> no, but it was uh, this truth part that you were talking about. Because you're very humble when it comes to truth. You tell us in the beginning of the book that you will try to tell the truth, but it's, it's impossible. Uh, and could you just tell me the relation between real characters and fictional characters in this book, just to, to make it clear? You know, my publisher hated me so much for this book. Uh, my editor, not publisher, but ed editor, because they, they said, is this true or not true? You know, which part is... And then they would go on Google and read about the history mm. of, of some parts, like the burning, the, the monk, the mm. burning monk. And, uh, and then she came back and she said, but it didn't happen that year. And I said, I know. But, you know, I'm trying to tell a story, you know, the message and the emotion. It's not so much about the facts, you know, the dates. And, um, and so we, we discuss a lot about that. Uh, for example, you know, that little girl in the box. I don't know how uh, that baby got to the U.S. Was she, had she been adopted directly from Vietnam, from American parents, or did she leave with the uh, Operation Baby Lift? I, I don't know. But because I, I need to tell you a story, you know, so I had to combine the two and say that this baby got, got out of Vietnam in that airplane and she survived the crash, right? But maybe it was not her, it was another baby. And also the combination, for example, I, um, I did hear a real... Um, a real survivor, uh, you know, of the that baby lift, uh, who uh, who was adopted by American parents, 
but she didn't know she was Vietnamese for a long, long time until she was in her 30s or something like that, because her parents were um, uh, well lived in Georgia, in a very conservative village, and uh, a, a small city. And so the parents wanted to protect her from racism and discrimination. So they didn't tell her that she was Vietnamese. So they raised her as a white kid. And, the, and, and in my mind, when I was listening to this, I said, how come she didn't have any Asian traits, you know, any Asian features left? And so I went back and I said, oh, maybe she, she was mixed twice you know, from the, the, the grandparents as well, and not only from the, the American father, but also from a French grandfather. And that's why she has lost a lot of her Asian features. And, uh, and so that's where I integrated into the character of Emma Jad. But it came, it came from a real story that I, I've heard. And the, the story of this girl was really hard breaking because she um, she succeeded at finding her biological Vietnamese mother again in Vietnam 30 something years later so she went back to Vietnam with an interpreter because she couldn't speak Vietnamese and the mother couldn't speak uh, uh, English and the interpreter uh, was um, uh, was American no was Vietnamese and so the person could speak English, but couldn't understand the culture, the American culture. And so at one point, the interpreter said to, um, to this girl, uh, she, um, he said that, oh, your, mother, uh, your, your brothers and sisters are now uh, um, uh, giving you the responsibility to take care of the mother that they have been taking care of the mother up to now, so now that you, you, you are linked again, you found your mother again, it's your responsibility to take care of the mother. And the girl was shattered because she thought that she find her mother just for love, not for some responsibility, you know, to give money and to take care and so on and so forth. But the interpreter didn't understand that that culture, that in North America, you don't have that kind of responsibility. But in Vietnam, in Vietnam, it's a way of speaking. It's not really taking care. It's just that now you're part of the family and we're gonna share everything that we do together. So the interpretation broke her heart a second time. So this girl went back to the US and never spoke again to the, the, the family in Vietnam due to bad interpretation. And and so yeah, so that part was real, but I I I couldn't put it into the book, and so I took bits and pieces of true story and put them together. And also, when you look at truth, um, you can never see the whole truth, right? If you can see only bits and pieces, is it still the truth? And that mm. was my my question for the, the yeah for the whole book uh, when I was writing it. Yeah. yeah. So the editor was satisfied. And I think that... No, uh, they were no, not, but, but what could they do, no. you know? <laughs> they had the text that they had. And so... <laughs> no, but my Swedish publisher never asked me questions. They were very nice. <laughs> no, but the lack of, of chronology sometimes, some, some place in the book, uh, adds to the very nice structure, I think. And you, you have to check out a lot of these things yourself. Mm. And that's... Uh, that's a nice, uh, nice thing. And what you just uh, talked about, the, the taking care of each other part and the relation that people have to each other when it comes to yeah, taking care of each other and, and who's the younger and, and who's the older. Uh, that's what the title is about too. Yes, and uh, yeah, because in Vietnamese we don't have personal pronouns, right? So we have to... Um, uh, to know right away who's younger, who's older. So I know now that you're much younger than me, so you're really my little brother. Mm -hmm. So I would say, big sister, speak to little brother. Little brother has a question for big sister. You know, so we have to establish that right away. Mm -hmm. So Ingma, I don't know if you're older than me. Uh, <laughs> if you're a little bit older than your big brother, but if you're a lot older than you're my uncle, 
And if you're my parents' age, then you have another title. And if you're, no, how would I say it? Yeah, if you're a little bit younger than my parents, it's a title. And if you're a little bit older than my parents, it's another one. So when you listen to two people speaking, you know right away the position of each other. And the younger person um, uh, uh, has to obey the older person, even if you're older only of one day, because oh, we wow. consider that you have lived one more day, mm. so you're one day wiser. Mm. You know, you've seen the road one day further than me, so I have to trust you on your point of view, right? And Very dangerous territory, I yeah. guess, <laughs> in everyday life. But at the same time, when you're older, you have to protect the uh, the younger person. So if at a table you will eat after the the younger person because you have to protect that younger person first, mm. and you after. So so you know it it works out. If everybody thinks for everybody, and <laughs> that was uh, on a plane, I, w I I sat next to um, a very old couple who had been together for ten thousand years. So I asked them and said, Oh, so what's your secret? And both of them said at the same time, well, we always think about the other person first. And they both said it at the same time. Oh, wow. and, uh, and I laughed and I said, yeah, that's, oh, that's a very good trick. But they said, but it works only if both of you, you know, think about the other person mm. first. But if only one, it doesn't work. And, um, and so in this case, you know, there's um, a give and take. Mm. from both sides and also the word m in uh, in french uh, it's the sound of the verb to love uh, but in the imperative form in the sense that i want to impose love you know to all of us to remind us that we must love because this book was written during the black lives matter in um, uh, in north america and um, it was uh, I was also angry at myself that I didn't read enough and you know study enough to understand the extent of uh, of the the issue in um, uh, for the black community and uh, and so that also was a a, um, a big wake up call for me uh, and so now oh my god I I feel like I'm, <laughs> I'm telling you that I'm an angry woman. <laughs> But I cried a lot, so that wiped out the anger. Uh, and then I, I got to write a book, and it's the best therapy, I think, for to, to stop being angry. Mm. Um, so now, yeah, I'm just going forward. And, okay, I'll tell the story. Do it. That's it. <laughs> Bring it on. And, uh, you know, one day there was one woman who really offended me. It's very rare. It happens once in a lifetime, I think. And she really made me very angry. And um, and so right away, you know, I stood up and I wanted to take my keys and go, you know, confront her. Because it was someone, you know, the agent who told me. And I said, I, I'll go and talk to her, you know, eye to eye. And that lawyer in me came out, you know, the warrior. And so I took the keys and went to my car. And I, I saw myself being so angry. I said, "Oh my God! You know my in, you know the 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 punch I'll give will be so hard that you know I might kill her in in my head. That you, the way that I will talk to her, it will make her lose her job. You know, I knew that I could make her lose her job, and I didn't want that. And so." I stopped and I forced myself to wait five minutes before I could get into the car. And I looked at the watch, you know, waiting for five minutes. And at the end of the five minutes, I said, no. I, I went to a florist instead. Because what I was mad about her was that she was not elegant. You know, what she was saying to me was offensive and, you know, lack of elegance. So I said I couldn't do the same to her, you know, to do the same gesture that I hated. So I said, I'm going to the florist. I go to the florist and I said, ma'am, I would like to have the biggest bouquet that you can make for someone who has just offended me terribly. And then the florist said, you want cactuses? You know, how many cactuses? <laughs>
And I said, no, I want the most beautiful flowers that you have. And so we went into the fridge and we chose, you know, the big flowers and blah, blah, blah. And, and it took her, you know, more than half an hour to make this bouquet. And then she explained to me, this flower is from that country, that, that country, blah, blah, blah. And the names in Latin. And, and then over the course of, you know, making this bouquet, and before I got there, I, I, I said, I will never forget the name of this person. I will open up a black list just with her name on it, right? And uh, I went in, and after the bouquet, well, it was very expensive. It was like $400 bouquet. <laughs> <laughs> so I left with the bouquet, and I got it, you know, someone delivered it for me. Uh, and I just put my name card with nothing else, no words at all. And well, you know, that's, that's what beauty does. I thought that I would never forget her name. And today, if you tell me her name, I would, it wouldn't even ring a bell. Because beauty has cured me completely. I got out of there with the bouquet, you know, like all happy and all proud of these beautiful flowers. And I totally forgot, you know, forgot. But you don't know how she kind of how she responded. She saw it as some kind of positive reinforcement. Uh, yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I'll keep up the good work. <laughs> oh, I never thought of that. <laughs> I thought that she would say, oh, maybe I was not elegant with Kim now. I should be elegant, you know, with other people. You're right. And she would go like, I want more bouquets, more flowers. Oh, it didn't work no, out, but eh? I, 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 I don't want to destroy the story. The essence is very it's valuable. Good. Maybe yeah. I should go see her now. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, yeah, so I, I really believe that, you know, yeah. we have to uh, give ourselves a chance and to find beauty and hold on to beauty so that it would, you know, help us stand back up. Otherwise, we will just die. Mm. Dostoevsky has said this, that, that beauty will save us. And he's not a god or anything, but it's not bad what he has, you know, what he said. And he's 200 years old, so he knows. So, yeah, yeah, he's like a wise man. Yeah. We have to believe him, right? Uh, Kim, the conversation is going towards its end, but I think maybe we could um, return to the text of the book. There's oh, a, yes. a little part that you could possibly read for us. Um, and <laughs> my, my publisher, they forget that I'm old, so I cannot see anything anymore. And so I have to put on the light. Sorry, I will turn on the light. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it's very short. Uh, but this chapter to me um, is like a summary of the book, almost. Mm. Uh, it's a chapter called The Forgotten. So 8,744,000 military personnel participated in the war involving the United States, North Vietnam, and South Vietnam. 58,177 American soldiers were killed, and 153,303 wounded. 1.5 million military personnel and 2 million civilians died in North Vietnam. 255,000 military personnel and 430,000 civilians were killed in South Vietnam. I wonder why there are only round figures on one side and exact ones on the other. And I, above all, why no list included the number of orphans, of widows, of aborted dream, dreams, of broken hearts. I also wonder if all those figures would have been different had love been considered in the calculations, in the strategies, the equations, and above all, the battles. That's it. That's it. Thank you so much, Kim. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much.